Midwest Mavericks is powered by Mother G, aligning business and technology. Probably not what you're thinking about in a commercial real estate broker, someone who goes to bat for the small business owner trying to negotiate the best possible deal. In other words, somebody who's fighting for the little guy. It seems unlikely, right? Well, today we have the illustrious Peter Billmeyer, co-founder of Bespoke Commercial Real Estate with that specific mission. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Pete. Happy to be here. I'm really impressed uh, by the organization that you've built with Bespoke, the culture that you've established and your focus, which I think is really powerful in a very crowded space with a lot of competitors. And I think you've really done an amazing job of creating uh, a niche that you are very targeted on. And I want to spend some time on that. But first, I want to get a little bit of background about Pete Billmeyer, because uh, you have kind of an interesting journey how you ended up in Chicago, because you're not a native from Chicago, are you? I am absolutely not. Yeah, but I'm a Midwest boy at heart. And um, after trying the West Coast and the South for a very brief moment, I knew I missed the Midwest. Yeah. So a uh, corn husker. Yeah. Uh, Cornhusker by birth, but not by choice. We're uh, we're a true Hawkeye family. My mother, father, sister, brother all went to Iowa. My brother even went to their med school. I'm the only one that didn't because they didn't have a soccer team. So this is funny because you grew up in what might be considered football country. Yeah? Uh, very much so. Not to mention Nebraska when I was growing up was winning all those national championships. Yeah. So it was it was tough. I mean, 93, 94, 97. Yeah. And I just, I've never been a big red fan. It's just and, not for me. And just for perspective, how old are you? Uh, 38. So when you're 18, 16, 14, 12, you're not in a world where soccer is a well known sport. That uh, for sure. I mean, it's certainly, you had two choices in the fall as a male athlete in high school, and it was either to run cross country or play football. And the rest of the country had plays high school soccer in the fall, but Nebraska doesn't want the competition. So you decide. I'm going to play soccer. It was a choice that was made when I was younger, just based on um, kind of how my athleticism worked out. And I love the game, but here's actually where it ties into my present. If you think about entrepreneurship, it's free flowing. You know, every day is right. different. You've got to be creative. You've got different problems. And, and so soccer is actually a very, very direct conduit to my entrepreneurship because it's how I've kind of just spent. It's a creative flow yeah, while you're on the field. Bulk of my life, exactly. So you you grow up playing soccer and quite impressively end up playing for Oregon State. That was uh, four years of of a lot of work. That yeah, was awesome. I mean Oregon was pretty good, right? We, so we started seven freshmen. My freshman year, we struggled, but come junior and senior year, we made the NCAA tournament. Senior year, we finished second in the Pac-10, which. You know, arguably That's, the second best conference in the, right, in the country yeah, behind the yeah. ACC. My, right. my sophomore year, Stanford and UCLA played for the national championship. Yeah. So wow. there's there's just, there was honestly nowhere to hide. If you didn't, you could lose maybe a game or two in non-conference and otherwise you weren't going to be able to make the tournament. It was, it was, it was tough. Genetically, I, there's certainly a flaw in your personality because you are a keeper uh, and not a field player, which I, there's got to be screwed loose with people that want to be keepers. That's a, a that's a definite fact. I will not allow my kids to be a keeper. I mean, it's so hard. My son, very tall, six six three, um, very fast and fluid, and has the natural skill for a keeper, but he couldn't handle it mentally. How did you deal with the the failure of giving up a goal? I mean, that's one of the hardest things for a keeper to be able to overcome. It's it's funny because in in the heat of the battle, um, it hurts you, and usually you kind of go through a quick like minute or two minute lull. And then you, you bounce back, especially, um, you know, when you built some continuity with your, your defenders in particular. Um, but 
I won't lie to you. So I screwed up in 2002 in the NCAA tournament, and it still haunts me to this <laughs> day. I yeah. mean, it, 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 it still, like, that, that pit in your stomach pain, you know, that you feel in very few instances in your life being broken up with or, you know, losing someone, um, it's, it's, it's almost to that level. But failure is, you know, not if, it's, it's when. And it's so informative and constructive for all of us as human beings. I think society, to a detriment, has gone so far toward not allowing kids to fail you know, this, everybody gets a trophy yeah, and all right. this. It's, it's, it's permeating now throughout the business world. And, you know, it's, it's a significant problem. It's I, something that we I, talk about a lot. I agree with you so much um, on this point that the, the idea that failure is bad is actually the opposite of the truth. Um, failure is how we learn. If, if we learn from the failure, we're considered wiser which is where wisdom comes from. It comes from failing and learning. Incompetence is failing repeatedly at the same thing over and over, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, but, but, um, yeah. So I, I agree with you completely. I, and I want to circle back on that. But um, I, I, I want to point out that you did play pro for a short time. Yes, I, I had a cup of coffee. <laughs> so uh, I didn't get drafted, I mean, but the starting goalkeeper in Dallas, Scott Garlic, broke his leg. They needed a backup, so I went down and backed up Jeff Kassar, uh, who was an absolute prince to me. But, uh, you know, league minimum at that time was eighteen five, yeah. So I was making $538 a week, give or take. After about four or five weeks being in Dallas, which you, you it's Dallas is a lot more fun if you have a few shekels than yeah. staying in a $30 yes, a night hotel. Uh, <laughs> and I just kind of had my moment, and I called my dad, and um, I was like, this just is not Parents working out. still living in Omaha at the time? Yeah, they yeah. both are still there. Yeah. And so uh, you say that's that's not for me. How, how did you make your journey from there to Chicago? So I was very fortunate. Um, my current business partner is best friends with my older brother from Iowa. Ah. And when we were together my freshman year of college for my brother's graduation from med school, we were just talking business. And he um, you know, was, was very kind. And he said, look, if you ever want to try this out and move to Chicago, let me know. And you can come come, you know, intern or work for me. And that's kind of how the journey began. We were yeah. there for a little over two and a half years. And then we, we cut made your teeth, got, yeah. got how to, how the business worked and started finding your, your own passion. Um, you founded Bespoke when? Six and a half years ago. Okay. And so um, you uh, found it with your partner, Vic, Sam Miguel, and it, it's focused on, t maybe talk about your focus and why you created it around that. Um, so that's the fun part. We were so fortunate to be surrounded by such incredible mentors, um, incredibly talented senior veterans that helped us construct what our strategy was going to be. At the time, Vic and I were kind of running on a road where we were at, and we met with some of the big firms and looked at you know kind of what that world would be like. He had previously been at one, and he knew the underbelly and didn't like it. Um, we'd had massive consolidation in our industry. There's some amazing firms that are no longer around in that specific tenant rep only, which was, you know, your Starbucks, your Studleys, you know, now they're, they're Civilis and you even have Equus. Um, so we looked at it as kind of, maybe there's a market opportunity here. I grew up in an entrepreneurial home. My mom built an amazing, uh, educational consulting business. I watched her trials and tribulations. And at the time I really didn't understand how formative they were. You know, her first book she ever wrote, it was published by a big corporation that, you know, uh, there's two sides to every coin, but I just remember them when they did a revert, um, a second version, if you will, a, re a rewrite, uh, about two years later, it ripped her heart out. And so she self-published the next three and the world's a funny place. Our nanny who lives with us 
and went to Florida Gulf Coast, had one of my mom's books as a textbook in Is college. that right? I mean, it's just, you, you can't make it up. Yeah. You know, and so um, that passion for privately held business owners that are truly the backbone of our country who are risking everything to create something, right? To to create jobs, to create a product, to create value. We felt like through the consolidation, they were being underserved. And we said, you know what? Let's go super, super laser focused and exclusively go conflict free where we never represent landlords, only tenants. But let's go with a step further that no one's had the audacity to go, which was we're only going to do privately held. No more corporate. You know, no more Fortune 1000 CFO. That cuts a lot of business off the table because, I mean, there's a lot of small businesses, but they, their checkbook's a lot smaller, right? It, it, it absolutely makes a deal more challenging because you're dealing with someone's personal finances. But I can tell you the intrinsic reward and the satisfaction you get by hitting it out of the park, there's no amount of success or money that can replace that. I yeah. mean, it's, it's a true honor to help an entrepreneur take their business to the next level. When you can go in, you know, in, in this current economy, in this current market, it's not plausible. But if we rewind the tape six years ago, you go in and you help an owner save 30% on their third highest business expense, yeah. you're a hero. I'll never forget. There was a financial firm we helped. They were, they're not large. They were 5,500 square feet. We saved them a quarter of a million dollars over five years. And the, the, the conversation was so easy. I, we basically I mean, just said, look. $50,000 a year. That could be a, a make or break. It's a 529 for a kid's education. Right. And, and it's like, how do you not get excited about that? Yeah. And, and how do you not feel passionate about that? Because if it's all about the check, you're never going to be able to work for us because you're never going to make it through the hiring process. Right. Right. So, um, I, I want to back up a little bit. Um, the downturn, uh, 2007, 8 through, you know, 12, 13, when you started Bespoke, because you started it right around that time frame, what what was that like in commercial real estate? I mean, was it terrible? How'd you survive? I think my experience is a little bit different because of the market that we served. Being on the tenant side, even if business is not great or the economy is not great, if you have a lease coming up, you have to do something. Yeah. So there's still, you know, a way to claw out and, and, and make some money. But the best part about that was you got to form really strong relationships because, you know, when you saw a company that really couldn't look further than two years into the abyss and you said, hey, I know we could take advantage of this soft market right now, but we need to do a two-year deal. We cannot commit to something long-term where we could potentially bankrupt your company. When you do that and you put the client first, you build those relationships that these are some clients now that I travel with and yeah. I've seen, you know, their kids graduate college and it's kind of like becoming part of the family. Yeah. Um, but there was money there. It just was none. There was no easy money. You had to really kind of fight for all of it. You start bespoke from scratch. Yes. Yes. Um, were you able to bring clients in over that you had relationships with? Talk to me about that journey. So it, it, it's one of those where I think, um, when you're in a boutique setting, your clients truly value the relationship with the individual. And this is something that I think about all the time with my own team. They're not necessarily loyal to the brand um, like you would be in a, a big corporate setting. And so what we did is we did it the right way. Uh, we wanted to leave on honest terms. So we, we left and we let our clients know, um, hey, here's where we went. Here's what we're doing. Here's what we're building. We, we appreciate your loyalty over the, you know, X amount of years. If this resonates with you and this is something that you, you know, want to learn more about, we'd love to have a conversation. We had a good seven years 
where we were previously. And, and so we didn't want to kind of blow that up. And, you know, we even went so far as the, the office that Victor and I were running, you know, we could have walked away, but we, we just didn't feel that was the right thing to do. So we actually did a full lease assignment where we just took over that office instead of sticking our previous employer with all those expenses. Gotcha. Yeah. That's pretty up and up on you. Um, so you start, was it just you and Vic when you've started? Uh, no, we had, um, two brokers that are still with us today okay, that, that decided, and, and, you know, this wasn't a planned, you know, where it wasn't planned where we said, Hey, you guys are coming with us. It was, here's what we're going to do. And if you want to join, we'd love to have you. If not, you know, because you understand when, when two leaders leave, you create a vacuum where right. they could have, you know, they certainly could have stepped in and, and, and taken over, taken over. They had a lot more leverage. They, right. they could have negotiated different you know, splits and different comp and all those pieces. So we're, we're really thankful they, they came and, and I'm even more thankful and proud that they're still with us Yeah, and they're doing great. So what was it like the early years of starting Bespoke? I mean, it's insanity. It's, um, it's almost, you know, like they talk about ignorance is bliss. Yeah. Um, so thankful to not know what I know now. I know certain things would have <laughs> so been easier, true, right? but I wouldn't you, have been nearly you, you, as... you would never step into that abyss if you knew all of the hassles you were going to have to go through as a business owner. Hell no. I mean, that's, it's, it's just like, it's, it's, it's truly laughable. Um, yeah. So the first two years was your, was your typical bumble stumble, you know, two steps forward, one step back, some self, some serious self-inflicted wounds. We were lucky though, that we, you know, we had done well to, save up enough capital to where we have a very, our, our cap table is 50, 50. We have no investors. We answer to no one. Um, so we were allowed to make some mistakes that we never should have, but education is not free. Right. And, and you know, those that think that you just turn on the lights and all of a sudden money rolls in or, you know, even if money does roll in, that doesn't mean that it's going to fall to the bottom line. Right. So there, there's so many lessons that were learned, um, and assembling a team, right? A team is a lot more than just who works under your brand. You've got to have a great accountant. You've got to have a great lawyer. You've got to have a great IT. I mean, Jesus, we've been through that a number of times. And um, that's where I was so thankful to find Mother G finally, because we do share so many um, synergies with how we value the client and right. value customer service and commitment, where in the beginning, you're just trying to figure it all out. And yeah. the whole time, you're always keeping in the back of your mind revenue because cash is king. Right. So uh, I've been there starting the business, and the one thing I didn't realize early in the business was how important culture was um, because you're so worried about revenue. You're so worried about keeping the lights on, paying the bills, being able to, you know, make rent, uh, let alone, you know, pay for your home mortgage and, you know, uh, put food on the table. Um, that culture kind of, it's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, I'll get to that. Um, and yet it is the underlying heartbeat of an organization. I'm wondering... When did you realize the importance of culture? Like, when was that epiphany for you? So it's funny. You, you mentioned, I think, one of the most important things that so many outside of our world don't understand, which is owners get paid last. Yeah. Every time. Yep. If you are a good operator and entrepreneur, you get paid last. And why I mention that is that ties directly into culture. So about... Uh, let's say two to two and a half years in, um, we really figured out, okay, we're going to make it, we're okay, but we need to do something different and we need to do it better. Uh, that's when we started assembling our board and we really looked at the duplication of, 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 of efforts. And that's where Victor and I completely bifurcated our roles. And by me no longer doing deals, physically going on tours, physically negotiating and doing all these other things, 
it freed me up to really start focusing on the the leadership of the company and the cultivation of our culture and all of those pieces because you know there's decisions that you make when a revenue check comes in and you've got all these bills to pay and you've got all these things but you know the right thing to do is to completely turn that check around as quickly as possible to pay you know one of your brokers etc it 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 all ties together in that magical elixir of culture and and my favorite you know my favorite thing that I try to explain to to aspiring entrepreneurs about culture is it's a lot like the adjective sexy. You can't necessarily define it in just a linear sentence because it means a bunch of different things, but when it's good, you know it, it's so good and you know it and it's obvious to everybody. Yeah. And when it's bad, it's, it's a train wreck. Yeah. And you know, only, you know, good companies are about making money. Great companies are about something much larger, much bigger. Yeah. I want to talk about your why for a minute. Um, what was your, how did you define your why? I mean, you talked a little bit about being focused on small business and, and I know there's that passion there. And, and I understand the, the lineage of that from your childhood and growing up and seeing it. But, but when you were out working with clients and you're seeing the market, you're, you're looking at um, uh, this. And I know nonprofit was another area that you spun into. Why, why did that drive you forward? Like, what was it that you and Vic both said, this is where we got to be? This is sort of like pitching me a beach ball, so I got to be a little bit um, not my, my full self on this answer. Um, <laughs> be your full self. Come on. It's, it's, it's simple. We, we now sit in a w- industry where we have six or seven international publicly traded firms that kind of dominate the landscape. They are on both sides of transactions where they do landlord, they do tenant, they answer to shareholders. So ultimately, what does a shareholder care about? Share price, right? Yeah, and, and, right. and and you you the direct correlation between share price and revenue is 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 obvious, right? So we got pissed off. I mean that's it started fortuitously that it was just something that we were passionate about. Um when we structured the company and we said we're only gonna do privately held, but if you look at the run-up over the last six years, now the fire and the you know the, or the, the the fire that fuels us and, and the passion is is I'm tired of these business owners like you and I that that don't sleep and walk through the front door of our respective companies every day, knowing we're responsible for all these livelihoods. Yeah, and I'm tired of them not getting the advice they deserve. And yeah. there are countless examples that I won't go into, um, but. The end of the day. Well, you you did this for us. I mean, you came in. It, it's a different experience to have um, a, a realtor who only represents your own personal, if you will, the buyer, right, the tenant, um, which is, uh, I think, powerful. I'd like you to take a minute and explain why that is different. So, it's it's a numbers game, and the the easiest way to explain, you know, we we have clients that or potential clients that say, look, I, I, I you keep mentioning conflict free. Like, explain that to me. What does that mean? And what it really boils down to is, in a very rudimentary level, let's say a company represents a building. We'll take Prudential Plaza and say it's it's a million two square feet. If you're an eight thousand square foot tenant, who's the client? They're never gonna beat up their own landlord, their own client on the the building side for an 8,000 foot user. It's just, it's, it's not fiscally responsible. And what they'll say is, Oh, well we're separated. You know I mean? I only do tenant. Well, 
it's not like the investment banking and private wealth business where you have to actually physically be on different floors or have a Chinese firewall between you. You could sit right next to each other. So that collusion and all those pieces, uh, I'll never forget. There was a, a, a pretty, you know, extensive industrial development deal where a company was looking at taking about 90,000 square feet. Um, and it, it was a make or break decision for them. I mean, it was new construction. It was going to cost a fortune to build out, et cetera. And I got involved. Long story short, their broker who was representing them was trying to put them in a building with a landlord where he represented 1.4 million square feet. Oof. So even though it was not conflicted, meaning the landlord broker was with a different firm, in the end, 1.4 million square feet to, to 90,000, I mean, who's the client? Right. And when it's corporate, that's mano a mano. I don't really have a problem with that. You, that. Corporations have these resources where there'll be five or six people on the team, you know, a facilities director, CFO, COO. But when it's an entrepreneur and you're wearing... It's just the guy and you're doing 12 other things while this is going on. Yeah, the guy or gal and you're wearing... Yeah, you've got all these different constraints and responsibilities. You have to hire on trust. I mean, yeah. when's the last time you actually dug through line by line your tax return? You know, it's the same exact thing. You got to have an amazing accountant. You got to have an amazing lawyer. And so, you know, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about our space. We recently um, renewed our lease. Uh, you were involved in that. Uh, you got us a lot of money from the tenant so that, or, I'm sorry, from the landlord so that we could remodel. And um, we were talking about this before the podcast began about the power of culture. And we, we touched on it already in the podcast a bit, but, um, I want you to talk a little bit about what the wrong space does uh, versus the right space and culture. And I'll share my experience with that uh, when you're done. So my, my favorite thing with regard to this culture conversation, um, and I don't talk publicly about it too often, but the buzzwords in our industry right now that are just regurgitated over and over is about recruiting and retainment. And that's what a broker says. A broker talks about recruiting and retainment because they don't necessarily really understand it because they've never had to do it. What an owner talks about is productivity because ultimately that's what matters and that's what falls to the PL is productivity. So our tagline is real estate's your down payment on culture. And I feel unless you are an absolute, you know, rocket ship being built mid flight tech company in some dumpy loft building where you just have so much belief in what you're doing, it's almost impossible to build a great culture outside of a positive physical environment. If you look at IBM, you look at Yahoo, they, they've gone away from allowing employees to work from home. There's a reason yep. for that. And it's nice for us because empathetically we've lived this. We went from a, a dumpy loft um, that was bare bones and cheap and just whatever yep. to really investing in our space. I give a lot of credit to a, a great entrepreneur, Dave Fader from Office Revolution, who oh, yeah. was the one that pushed me. And he basically said, you either are or you aren't. You know, you're either going to walk to walk and you guys sit there and you counsel these great companies but you're not willing to do it yourself. It rings, it rings hollow. Yeah. And he was a hundred percent right. So in, you know, working with mother G, we, we, we wanted to push you to understand that if you spend the dollars and attention on the accoutrements that a team desires today, you're not only going to be able to recruit better. You're not only going to be able to retain, but you're going to get them to stay in the office longer. And that's the most crucial part. Well, you know, it's funny because when we, we, we had a, um, a very functional office. Um, it was big. It had plenty of space. Uh, it had all the things that you need in an office, a kitchen. It's, you know, meeting rooms, lots of conference rooms. Um, 
but it was circa 1980s. Like it just felt, you know, yellow paint and and uh, the furniture wasn't old, but it just felt old. Everything felt old. And um, you and Vic came in, gave us a vision, said, look, you're, you're going to renew this lease. Let's get some money from the landlord in, you know, he hasn't put any money into this place. Let's let's open it up. And you gave me a few ideas about opening, you know, uh, the, the lunchroom up and, and opening up the, the entryway and creating collaboration space. And I can tell you when I went to my leadership team and said, hey, you know, we're going to open up these collaboration space. They said, what's that? I said, well, think of it like a conference room in the middle of the office where there's no walls. And they're like, we're never going to use that. That, you know, that's silly. And they were questioning, why are we going to disrupt the office? Let's just paint the walls or replace the carpet. It'll be fine. We don't have to have any downtime. And it, it and we went through the remodel anyway. It was about eight weeks. It was pretty disruptive um, in, in handling that time where we had to work from home. We had to accommodate. We had to move out of the space, uh, basically move out of the space um, into an adjacent space for a temporary time. It was very disruptive. But when they walked back into that space, you could just see the pride that they had in showing up to work. Um, the the meet, Those open meeting areas are, are now frequently people sitting in them, frequently uh, doing ad hoc uh, uh, meetings together. Uh, our lunchroom is more like um, a tavern. I, you know, it's more like a modern tavern than it is a lunchroom. And, and uh, you know, we opened up the kitchen. There's just this sense of, um, feeling of of pride to walk into the office and say, yeah, this is where I work now versus where, you know, we've got a great culture, but the office didn't reinforce the culture. It didn't align with what our self-image was. And now you helped us create this this space that is much more aligned with our own self-image and our own feelings of collaboration and in, in, in working together. And I, you know, everyone just loves it and it's really powerful. So here's the, here's the drawback of radio. I mean, just the excitement on your face talking about it is it's the most rewarding feeling. I mean, this goes back to what I was talking about is, is how do you not get excited about this kind of stuff? Cause I know exactly what you feel every morning that Mary or yourself walk through that front door. Yeah. And this is what you always envisioned it to be right. You know, between two great companies with mother Dre and Transtech, and ultimately you deserve it and your yeah. team deserves it. Yeah. And you know, we call those, you know, the, 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 the kitchen open area, the heartbeat of the space or the town hall, and the the beauty of what comes out of that, you get synergies, you get collaboration, you get some of those pieces that are so great for business, but there's this unintended benefit that people don't really talk about, which is your team starts to build relationships that supersede Mother G or Transtech. Yeah. And they become, yeah. dare I say, friendships or right. you know a personal connection, which when your team is going through a tough time, that can be crucial. When... You know, things are great. Everything's easy. But when someone is looking at being recruited away, we're not always going to be able to compete on, on, on wage and salary, right? No, so so someone's looking at getting an increase, but they don't want to leave because right. they don't want to leave this their team. Buddies. Yeah. Their buddies are there. Their tribe. They don't want to leave them. They don't want to yeah. leave their tribe, as right. you call it. Yeah, right. It's it's really powerful. And, and, and uh, you, you know, I, I, I will tell you naively, um, probably out of necessity when, when I started Mother G., uh, I looked at space, you know, because I'm, I don't need fancy space. I'm not, you know, a guy that drives a super fancy car. Um, but, uh, I, I find things to be more important about functional. I'm, I'm much more about function. Uh, and, and I really ignored this aspect for a long time, but when we align space 
to meet the need and drive and underlying vibe of an organization, it tends to pour gas on the positive or the negative. And, and what, what I've seen lately is how, how impactful it can be in a positive standpoint. And I, I'm really proud of that. So I'm, I'm really thankful you guys helping us with that journey. I mean, it, you both deserve so much credit that you, you, you made the leap. You, you trusted because, you know, those dollars that were spent on construction could have been dollars that went directly to, 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 to revenue, to free yeah. rent and yeah. rent, you know, rent credits and all those other things. So for me, it's, it's, it's part of the partnership and that's yeah. what makes it so fun. Um, yeah. cause it's, when it's good, there's nothing better. Yeah. So um, I want to change tax just a second and, and talk about space in general. Uh, I know real estate is really hot right now. What's the biggest challenge for, for a business owner today versus, you know, back in, you know, in the downturn, it was minimize rent, keep the lights on, you know, stabilize and, and maintain, minimize risk. What is it now? The biggest issues we have going on right now, and I'll speak only toward our clients, um, you know, the privately held is when it's your money, you're very price sensitive, not only to the rent, but the construction. Uh, we have, we, we have one third less union laborers than we had in 2009. And the cost to build anything right now is, is sky high. It's one of those where it, it becomes very cost prohibitive, which to, to, to work around that, the creativity uh, it takes sometimes is to help a client right size, you know, just because they're in, 10,000 feet doesn't mean they need to be in 10,000 feet and and sitting down with a programmer, a space programmer, and really working through your vision for the company, distilling that down to how many square feet you actually do need to make sure we're in that strike zone. And then it's trying to mitigate and limit term. Um, you know, there's sometimes solutions that you, you have to be aware of, meaning, you know, okay, I could go three more years and have a landlord pay for everything. But that's probably not in the best interest of your business, especially, you know, we're, we've got the, the baby boomer generation aging out. And, you know, anytime I hear I want to really kind of pound EBITDA for the next three to five years and, and hopefully a strategic or maybe PE is coming after me, you, you can't shove those clients into a 10 year deal. You have right. to you, you have to really talk through with, OK, well, what about if we pay cash for this and let's try to be really efficient with it so we can accelerate depreciation, for example, you know, never using a construction allowance to buy furniture. You want to buy furniture with cash. Right. Even if you had to finance it because the depreciation is going to be so much more beneficial. Um, so it's, it's, it's those pieces, but there still are great deals to be had. What about Milwaukee? Do you have any perspective on Milwaukee's market? So we've done a few things. Um, I will tell you, there's a lot of money chasing up in Milwaukee. Uh, we're pretty excited about what is going on in the downtown and the revitalization, if you will. I think any company that geographically can relocate without taking a major hit is going to. Yeah. Um, businesses are very, very intimidated by the economic climate of Illinois and what's going on yeah. with the underfunded pensions and all those. Um, you know, if we go to the graduated income tax and now all of a sudden, I think, I think Wisconsin's right around 5%. Yeah. Um, yep. you know, I, I, we, we, with increasing velocity, we're getting asked more and more, uh, about that market. Yeah. And I know there's some cool old, uh, you know, distributor beer, yeah, the brewery yeah, buildings really that cool are being buildings, yeah, especially yeah, South Milwaukee. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I want to touch a little bit on the softer side of Pete. You you do a lot of work with charities, and I, I'm 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 really proud to say you're my friend because I I really respect this aspect. Um, I know you're involved with the Daniel Murphy uh, uh, scholarship fund. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, so Daniel Murphy is uh, just a tremendous organization that was founded by Bob and Jim Murphy back in the late 80s in honor of their father. Um, 
which the main and core focus is, uh, you know, just so, so brilliant. Um, and I'll riff on it for just a second because it, it, it's more than just saying, you know, it's to help underserved, um, underprivileged children get great high school education. What I think the true message is instead of solving problems down the road with homelessness and violence and you know abuse and all these other things, it's let's start creating solutions and getting out in front of it. And what I mean by that is the amount of effort that goes into acquiring a Daniel Murphy scholarship is, is truly incredible. We, you know, the, these middle school kids, they, you know, they have to submit two essays out of three questions. They have to submit their test scores. We interview not only the child, we interview the parents. We want to know what the support structure is. We also look at the parents' tax returns. So the accountability and transparency that goes into making these decisions are some of the most incredible yet daunting decisions when you sit there and you go through interview day. Um, we got to be hard saying no. It is the hardest uh, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And you do it, you know, we do it twice a year. Um, there's two interview periods, but it's, it's over a series of weeks. I've taken a lot of clients to participate with me. Um, it's, it's a very humbling experience, but we have over 99% graduation rate in, in high school. And you know, it's, and how many, how many scholarships do you give out a year? We are, you know, it changes, but I think we're at 487 um, oh, that's tremendous. for the annual calendar year of, of high school students, tremendous. all going to top private institutions in the Chicagoland area. And then what's the, um, what's the, what's the next step for those students? So that's the next typical. step is college. Yeah. And I think we're in the mid nineties, 95 to 97% of, of wow. graduating for right. four year institutions. Tremendous. A lot of them, um, dovetail really nicely into the Evans scholarship, which, yeah. you know, through caddying, you know, you get everything paid for in college. Right. Uh, but it's, it's, it's truly an, just an incredible organization. And, and, and how'd you get involved in this? I got involved through so one of well, one of my board members, Greg Zeman, um, was on the board, and some other friends, Justin Foley, that kind of pulled me in. They knew that I came from an education background, and after spending so many years in the disabled kind of charity world, I wanted to try something different. I've never seen anyone network like you. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, good and bad, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're very outgoing. You talk to anybody, and and you are a connector. I mean, you've You've connected me with a lot of people, and and uh, I've seen you connect other people. You're a very gracious person. I think that's um, kind of natural for you, um, uh, and it, it's pretty powerful. So uh, good job on that. I, I do want to close with with one last question for you. Uh, I I've heard you say you have to be willing to be successful. What do you mean by that? So there's a there's an amazing book called The Go Giver by Bob Berg, and one of the you know, formative chapters in that book is, you know, for someone that wants to do so much for others, it is grossly offensive to not allow others to reciprocate. And when I think about being willing to be successful, you've got to be willing to accept it all. You've got to be willing to accept the work. You've got to be willing to accept the criticism. You've got to be willing to accept, you know, the, the entire breadth of what that all means just like if you're going to be a true go-giver, you're going to be a great connector or networker, you've got to be willing to let others reciprocate to you. And when I look at our company, um, the limited success that we've had, I unequivocally can tell you because we were willing to be successful, we were willing to listen, we were willing to learn from the four incredible board members that we have, 
we, we, we've, we've shaved a number of years of, of trial and tribulation off of that growth curve because of that openness to being humble enough. And, and no one's ever accused me of being humble, so let me throw that out there. <laughs> but That is true, especially yeah. at a golf course. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on the amount of uh, libations, I suppose. Yeah. But it, it, it's, I, I, I try really hard to explain to you know, aspiring entrepreneurs that I mentor you know, kudos to you to want to learn, but when it's tough and you're in the trenches and it's really hard, that's when you have to be the most acutely aware that God gave us two ears and one mouth. Yeah, it's true. It's good advice. Pete, uh, you're, you're an awesome uh, advocate for your tenants and uh, I, I really appreciate knowing you and thanks for joining us today on our podcast. I appreciate your friendship as always. Thank you so much. Yeah. If you're a maverick who wants your story told on Midwest Mavericks, go to motherg.com slash podcast and let us know. That's motherg.com slash podcast. Midwest Mavericks is powered by Mother G. For more information and a free security assessment, visit motherg.com.